Good morning, everybody. We are once again in a slightly different location as we continue to do some um, renovations and some painting over in the sanctuary. And hopefully some point soon we'll be able to share with you guys those uh, changes in person. But for today, we will thank God for the ability to um, be able to be with one another to, to hear his word preached and um, after our time here to God willing gather for Sunday school via Zoom. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 today and while you're turning there I will pray for us. Father, thank you for this time, thank you for this day, thank you for your word, and thank you for your love for us, thank you for the fact that you are exactly who you say you are. And we are exactly who you say we are in Christ. Lord, I pray today through your word, by the power of your spirit, we may see our Lord and Savior more clearly. We may rejoice in our identity more fully. And we may delight in you as you have saved us too. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Luke 12, <clears throat> starting in verse 35. And as I was looking at this text, I was thinking about the horrible, horrible situation where we find ourselves in with limited live sports. And because of that, some of us have nothing to watch on the television except these home remodeling shows. And it's, it's gotten worse. I'm familiar with three or four of these shows now. You, you have homesteading renovations. You have suburban renovations. You have people who won the lottery renovations. You have uh, love it or list it renovations. And if you ever want to talk about these, call. Apparently, I've watched them all, and I have opinions on all of these things. And you can be praying for live sports to come back, because who wants a pastor addicted to home renovation shows? But the problem I was realizing as I'm watching these shows is I think most people assume Christianity is a home remodeling program. It's kind of like you notice your house isn't quite right, so you, you find this Jesus guy and you invite him in and he promises to, to fix up the parts of your house that aren't so good. So you got leaky plumbing, well, if you invite Jesus into your house, he'll fix up your leaky plumbing. Your, maybe your, your foundation is a little bit tilted. Well, you invite Jesus into your house, he'll do the foundation or carpentry or, or carpet or you get the gist. Well, we call that moral reformation. Uh, meaning, yeah, you have a problem with a relationship, you have a problem with your finances, you have a problem with anger, you have a problem with, with raising kids. Well, you, you invite Jesus in for a little home remodeling, a little moral reformation. And, and Christianity, biblical Christianity, saving faith is not moral reformation. And I don't want to minimize moral reformation. There, there are people who will be addicted to substances. There will be people who are uh, violently rageful, who will reform themselves and become, if you will, better people. They will overcome an addiction. They will overcome a, an anger issue. They will overcome a lifestyle of destruction. But moral reformation does that by you setting the goals, you accomplishing the goals, and you're in control. <clears throat> That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is more like Jesus with a bulldozer. He comes to your house and plows the whole thing over, builds a new house on a right foundation. 
He doesn't come to help with your agenda. He comes to give you a new agenda. And you realize the house you were living in wasn't really a house you wanted to be living in because one day it would crumble. And so that brings us to our text, hopefully. And in verse 35 of Luke 12, it says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. <clears throat> but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour, <clears throat> pardon me, the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and the wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, but... If that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is a marvelous text, and, and it's about, really, Jesus' second coming. And that is a wonderfully confusing topic for most people. First, it's highly neglected. We, we, we know as Christians he's coming, but we don't really understand the logistics of it because it just seems to be confusing. It's highly distorted. If you want to find a good cult, find someone who predicts a date when Jesus is coming. Go with them to the desert on the date they predict. You have to wear your pajamas, apparently, because they all wear pajamas for Jesus to come. And then you drink Kool-Aid and then the guy changes the date and he gets a new revelation and you get a new date and then you go back to the desert in a new set of pajamas. It's a great way to find a cult. It's a great way to end up in hell apart from Christ. But, you know, if, if you're looking for a cult and you want to deny Christ, you might as well go with a bang. Well, that's a distorted version in the cultic sense, but it's also distorted in, in, in the Christian community where you have people who watch the news and, and you're sort of reading the tea leaves and you're getting ready, you know, so... So we have a pandemic, which means Jesus is coming soon because there will be plagues and earthquakes and famines. So <clears throat> we got to get ready because he's coming. Or after every national election cycle, there's a population convinced the Antichrist was just voted into office. And this is a sign of Jesus's imminent return. And I'm, I'm asked often by people, do you think Jesus will come soon? Well, see, that's an interesting question because he's told us no one knows exactly when he's coming, so I don't know how I'm supposed to answer that for you. He is coming, but when's he coming? And, and here's the point. Here's the text. Listen to this. Scripture is, is very clear throughout <clears throat> that the return of Christ is imminent. 
And now you think, well, it's been 2,000 years, so when's he coming? And this is where most Christians function. He's coming, but he's not coming anytime soon. We're not living our lives as if Jesus might show up today. We, we're, in reality, we're living our lives like he'll show up at some point, but long after we're dead. But if you read scripture, if you read, say, 1 Peter 4, 7, it talks about the end of all things is at hand. You read 1 John 2, 8, and, and John says it is the last hour. Revelation 1, 1, these things that must soon take place. Or, or Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 the, the, the day drawing near, the day of his return. And here's what scripture would mean by, by the term imminent. There is nothing that has to take place before Jesus shows up. We're not waiting on a, a plague, an earthquake, a, 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 any historical event. Everything is done that will be done before he returns and he can return at any moment. His return is imminent. That means his return is the next historical event in the redemptive plan, if you will, on that scale. So what Jesus is saying here, and think about this, he's saying this before his ascension. So we're taking it as people who know he's ascended and he'll come again while he's initially speaking to these disciples who don't understand that full context like we do. But what he's saying to them, and how much more so to us, is when I come back, I better find you ready. And so that, that leads to an interesting question. So he calls himself the Son of Man, right? He says in verse 40, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And, and the term Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, and, and every Jew would know what it was talking about. In verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what Jesus is saying to this crowd, starting in 12.1, is I am that Son of Man. I am the Messiah. I am God. And I will come again. And when I come again, you better be ready for my return because it will be far more wonderful for those who are ready than they can realize, but far more frightening for those who are not ready than they can ever comprehend. And, and if you want to find a good text of scripture that you can really go sideways quickly if you lose context, this is it. So let's make sure we, we hold on to context. So he says, you also must be ready. And that should pose a question, well, okay, Lord, what does it mean to be ready? How are we to be ready? Why, why does it matter that we're ready? Aren't we saved by grace through faith? Didn't you already make us ready? Well, the answer is yes and no. And follow along with this. In verse 35 to 39, Jesus gives four illustrations of what readiness looks like. First one says, stay dressed for action. There's a much better translation that makes no sense in, in our context, but it's be girded for action. Don't you, don't you like that? Be girded. I always want to gird stuff. Well, what it is, is back in the day to the horror of, of American men, men wore dresses. They didn't call them dresses, but men wore dresses at this time. You know, they basically had a sheet with a hole in the top and a hole for the arms and it ran down to your legs. And I guess I've never tried this, but I guess you can't run so well in a dress. 
So what would happen is if you were going to, to labor, if you were going to work, if you were going to have to run, you would gird up your dress to your loins. And that just sounds so, so wonderful. Gird your clothes. So you'd pull the long part up and you tuck it in your belt. And then you were ready to run. You were girded. It's how the Israelites were called to eat during the Passover, during the last plague. They, they were to eat ready for action. They were to eat that meal girded to go. Or, or you know, Peter was always girding up his clothes because he was jumping in the water to run to Jesus, running after this, lopping off Malchus's ear. You know, he, that guy was girded. He must have had a whole slew of belts to tuck his dress in. And I don't mean to make fun because Peter will probably beat me up in, in, in heaven when he meets me and I made fun of his dress. But his point is be dressed for action. Be, be ready to go. His second one is keep your lamps burning. It, it, walk in the light. Be prepared. Be, be prepared and available. The third one is be like men waiting for their master's return. So masters would go to weddings and they didn't say, you know, we, we have weddings now. Weddings have a start time and an end time, right? You book a reception hall, you know the wedding starts at 12, you'll be out of there by 6, or maybe it starts at 4, you're out of there by 10, and you drive your car. And Well, that's not how weddings worked back then. Weddings were multi-day affairs, and you travel by foot to get there, and you never knew how many days it would take or how long it would take to get back. There could be rain, there could be trouble. So when a master would go to a wedding, he would come back, but he wouldn't say, I'll be back at four o'clock. You know, like kids, your parents go out and, and they say, we'll be back at nine o'clock. So, you know, by like 845, you better start cleaning up the house so you don't get caught, right? Well, Jesus' point is you don't know when the master's coming, but, but be ready, be prepared. He'll be back. How prepared? Well, like a thief. See, he says, uh, the master, if he knew at what hour the thief was coming, wouldn't have left his house to be broken into. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, salvation of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. Well, when do thieves come? When you're not ready. And his point is, be ready, be attentive, be alert, be girded for action, keep your lamps burning, I'm coming back. Well, is it just me or do you all hate sometimes when people, not Jesus, but when people talk in... in weird illustrations that make so make no sense as far as application. You know, I'm really stressed out. Well, you should rest like a dove in the branches. Like, thanks so much. What, do you want me to climb a tree and coo? Like, what does that mean? Can you, can you put it in, into practical words for me? Well, Jesus always speaks in practical words, and he gives us these illustrations, but he also makes it practical. So remember, this is a discourse that started back in 12.1. And we've seen some things Jesus is talking about to these disciples in 12.1, and it goes to 13.9. And what he's doing is landing what he's talked about, and here's what he's saying. Be ready. Well, Jesus, what does be ready look like? Well, be ready looks like, go all the way back to 12.1. Looks like being aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Hypocrisy, self-righteous legalism, um, outward conformity with, with an inward lack. Beware of that leaven. Fear God, confess Christ, listen to the Holy Spirit through who speaks through the word of God. Beware of the love of money and materialism. Trust God's plan, purpose, and provision, not your own. This is how you must be living. And when I come back, if I catch you living this way, now, now this, is, this is marvelous. If I catch you living this way, I will serve you at table. 
Do you see what he says? Truly I say to you, verse 37, truly I say to you, he will dress himself, the master when he returns, dress himself for service and have them recline at table and will come and serve them. I mean, do you ever think about that? So the master comes back, the servant's supposed to open the door, welcome him in, feed him, and then he goes to bed. Jesus is saying he's a master who came to serve his servants, who will sit at his table for intimate fellowship with him as he serves them. I mean, we'll unpack this more as we move forward from here in Luke, but, but don't miss this. If he catches you ready, he will serve you and he will allow you intimate fellowship with him. But, and let's make this really uncomfortable. If he finds you not ready, he's going to beat you up, chop you up, and throw you into hell. You say, wait, where are you reading that? I, I made it up. It was a better, better ending. I didn't make it up. Look at this. Go down to verse 45. <clears throat> but if that servant says to himself, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him, at an hour he doesn't know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who didn't know and did what deserved a beating, well, he'll get a light beating and then he'll go to hell. I mean, I want you to chew on, on what's going on here. Jesus is saying, he's not making this up. He's not, he's not being flippant. He's being quite clear and, and quite deliberate and quite frightening, <clears throat> unless you see the gospel. Saying, when I come back, if your life is not marked by an awareness and an avoidance of the leaven of the Pharisees, false religion, by a demonstrable fear of God, marked by a confession of Christ, evidenced by listening to the Spirit, submitting to the Word of God is true. If your life is not marked by an awareness of your propensity of love of money and materialism and a fleeing from it, serving God, not money, if your life is not marked by trusting in God's plan, purpose, and provision, not your own, said another way, if your life is not marked by doing God's will to glor and glorifying His name, but rather doing your will to glorify your name. Jesus says, if I come back and find you who know all this stuff, not doing what I've told you, I will beat you, cut you up, and throw you into hell. Now you go, see, if, if you leave right now or you just stop the recording, you, you got one messed up, distorted gospel presentation. But if you don't get this part, you're never going to get to the gospel. Because Jesus isn't kidding. If he finds you living outside of the will of God, what you merit is a whooping, a cutting, and a burning. Now, this should unsettle us a little bit. It, it should frighten us a little bit because if we're honest and we, we stop and take an inventory, are we always living our lives ready for God? Like, is it just a matter of just at that last moment doing the right thing when he comes back? You know, you know that, that kid, what was it, the leave it to beaver? Um, there, was, there was that Haskell kid, right? And, and he was a bad dude, but he was always doing the right thing. I had a friend growing up, his, his name was Russell. It would be really, 
embarrassing if Russell watches this, but Russell was like a bad kid. He was always doing bad stuff. You know, he, he was the kid who was the first kid with cigarettes. He was stealing stuff from the stores. He, he always doing, he had the magazines you shouldn't be having. But whenever a parent was around, it's like he had a radar and he would be like, oh, hello, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. It's so good to see you. And so many parents thought he was a nice kid. Well, is that it? Is, is it a matter if we're going to trick Jesus? You know, it's, you're doing everything you shouldn't do, and all of a sudden he's coming, and, all, and, and then you're like, oh, no, 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 let me tell you about Jesus and how great he is. Oh, no, no, I'm giving this to the Lord. Is that, is that what we're after? <clears throat> no. But if you inventory your life, are we always living in a fear of God, confessing Christ, submitting to the word of God? Are we constantly avoiding the temptation of the love of money and materialism? Or are we always trusting in God's plan, provision, and purpose over our own? And if your answer is yes, well, you fall into the trap of self-righteous legalism. Uh, you, you, you've, you've been corrupted by the leaven of the Pharisees. If the answer is no, well, well, now you're in a decent spot to see the gospel. Because what we deserve, this is Jesus's point, <clears throat> What we deserve is cut and beaten and burning. That's what we merit. It, 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 you're never going to live your life so well that Jesus is going to show up and go, wow, I am just so impressed with how incredibly wonderful you are. No. But the goal is not what you expect. The goal is not a home renovation. The goal is in, well, Jesus, I got some trouble with money. I got some trouble with anger. I got some trouble with laziness. If you could tune that up, then I'll be reading your word, loving your word, giving to you, preaching. Just, just if you could tune those up. No. You see, this cut in pieces thing, I don't think most people think of God as a God who would cut people in pieces. Uh, you, you might want to read Revelation. There's, there's this part where there's like blood flowing through the streets and the, the height of a horse's shoulder and, and judgment and wrath. There's, there's this aspect of, Oh, I don't know, Sodom and Gomorrah. There, there was this flood back in the day. Um, there, there, there's some scary stuff about God's wrath. But do you know what the cutting has to do with? If you go back, for example, like Exodus 29, and you look at sin offerings, do you know what you would do with a sin offering? You would take an animal, and do you know what you did with the animal? I'll, I'll give you a guess. You didn't pet it. You cut it up and you put it on the altar to burn. And people were never forgiven by the animal being cut and burned, but the animal sacrifice pointed forward to an ultimate sacrifice that would come one day. <clears throat> and we know that ultimate sacrifice, that true Passover lamb, is our Lord Jesus. And he was cut and beaten and burned, if you will, in our place. He was the sacrifice to atone for our sins. And through that atonement, he took the cutting and beating and burning in our place. Do you see that? But he didn't just hang on the cross and die. He didn't just go to a tomb, he rose. And his resurrection is what we're after in this. This is about, Christianity is about resurrection living. Now, now watch this. Too often, I fear people think Jesus came just to forgive them of their sins. And he does forgive us of our sins, but... If all you focus on is he forgave you of your sins, well, then you might as well just keep on sinning and keep on being forgiven. I think Paul spoke about that in Romans, didn't he? I don't think. I know he did. 
What then? Where, where grace abounds, shall we not just let sin abound more so, so grace may abound even more than that? No. Jesus came to forgive you, but also not a home renovation project, a home demolition project. He came to build a whole new house. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36 again, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That's 36.25. And, and I'm afraid that's all we give out at a gospel presentation. But look, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, what Jesus is saying is, here's what our response should be. <clears throat> he says, listen, hey guys, you've heard me teaching. Just a heads up, when I come back, if I find you not doing what I've taught you to do, I'm going to beat you, cut you, and you're going to go to hell. And so, you're not supposed to say, gotcha, I'll work really hard at it. You're supposed to understand the response is, how am I supposed to do that? Uh, Lord, I can't do that. If I'm honest, I don't do that. And if I'm really honest, I don't want to do that. I prefer to glorify myself. I prefer to do my will. I prefer to, oh, wait a minute. It's kind of like if we go back to where we were in the parable of the rich fool. I prefer to eat and drink and have my rest and ease. Lord Jesus, I don't have any desire on my own to serve you and glorify you. And the next thing you say is important. It's either going to be, I don't care or help. And if the answer of the response is help, now you're in the right boat. Lord Jesus, help me. I won't be ready on my own. Lord Jesus, I'm not obeying you on my own. Lord Jesus, I, I don't want to in my flesh. Help me, forgive me, make me new. And here's the gospel. The gospel is not about trying harder. The gospel is about recognizing you can't do it. But when he causes you to be born anew, little by little you will do it because he has made you able to do it. And one of the defining marks of a Christian person is that when they look at their life, they do see that they are incrementally more aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, false teaching. They are incrementally more desirous of fearing God, confessing Christ, and submitting to his word. They are incrementally more uh, attentive to not loving money and materialism, but loving God. They are more active in trusting God's plan, purpose, and provision. And if you find that you're not, what, what Jesus is saying in the words of a famous rap artist, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself because bad theology is bad for your health. What he's saying is, don't go home and try harder. He's saying, come to me and confess that you can't. And for those of us who recognize that we are saved, but we do not, it's not that we cannot, it's that we, we need to be attentive to pull it off. Think about this. We spoke about this just, just a brief moment this morning in, in prayer time. I know a guy, brother in Christ, a messed up dude, uh, he has the blood on his hands of literally thousands and thousands of people. But in this one particular instance, um, he, he, was, he was hanging out on his deck one day, 
just relaxing, enjoying the weather, you know, springtime, listening to the birds. And, and, and way off in the distance, there, there was some lady walking around on her deck. And so he, he called for his binoculars. And he was just gazing over, and this lady was, was out there, and, and she's taking a bath. And he, he's zooming in on his binoculars, and he, he called another servant. He said, go get that lady. Bring her over. Her husband's out of town. I know she's out of town. Bring her over. So she came over, and they, they had a little, little, little uh, uh, a deck, you know, get together. And she went home, and she ended up getting herself pregnant by him. And, and he said, well, well, now this is a problem. So he called his her husband back and he said why don't you go visit with your wife have your own little deck party with her and, and he said no I'm not because my, my, my guys are out fighting I'm gonna sleep here and it didn't work so so this guy I know he, he had him killed and then there was a, a, a man who came to him and, and said hey hey I, I love you enough I'm gonna I'm gonna speak God's word to you and I want to tell you a story about a, a guy who stole a lamb and I'll let you connect the dots it's David and Nathan and Bathsheba and Uriah and and David, well, if, if Jesus came back right then, I understand he couldn't come back right then because he couldn't, hadn't come the first time, but bear with me. If Jesus had come back right then, he wouldn't have found David doing what David should have been doing, and David would have merited hell. Amen? But the reason David was a man after God's own heart was because we can capture some of his thoughts in a place like Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn to you, return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifice, in burnt offering, and in whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Here's the point of the text. Jesus is coming back. He will hold us to account for what we have been entrusted with. And if we have heard the gospel, if we understand who we are apart from Christ, who Christ is and who he makes us in Christ, well, that's serious business. And the serious business is this. 
Jesus says, for example, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But the way that happens isn't by you simply trying harder. It's by you seeing better and being sanctified by him, which happens as you trust in him and walk in his will, as you're attentive to the leaven of the Pharisees, as you demonstrably fear God, confess Christ, and listen to the Spirit, meaning submitting to the Word of God, as you're aware of, attentive to, and fleeing from a love of money and materialism, and as you live your life trusting in God's plan for His purposes based on His provision. So a not-ready person is a person with no sense of urgency. It's a person who says, hey, he'll come, but he'll come, who knows when. It's a person who uses what is entrusted to them for their own purposes and self-gratification. Well, look what I got. How can I spend that on me? Time, talent, or treasure. It's a person who uses and abuses people. What does it look like to use and abuse people? Well, when you look at people, do you see them as things there to serve you? Or do you see yourself there to serve them? How can you tell? Well, what's your response when someone irritates you or annoys you? Is it I'm done with you or I will persevere in loving you? What do you do with a, a lost person? Do you delight in bringing them the gospel even at cost to yourself? Or do you just kind of enjoy your relationship with them so why mess it up with something like that? But in reality, we're all not ready people on our own way too often. But we have an always ready, always present Savior who forgives us who restores us, and who sanctifies us. And as those who are born anew, as we labor in the Lord, as we fight to be ready, as we trust in his word and walk in his will, which we're able to do by new birth, little by little, more and more, we'll see Jesus more clearly, we'll see ourselves more clearly, and we'll delight and desire to live at the ready for his return because he is glorified through it, because he causes his people to. Do you see that? So in a, in a world, in a culture that sees Jesus as coming to help me with my agenda, I, I opened up a business, Jesus is going to bless it. I, I got a paycheck, Jesus is going to bless it. I got a relationship, Jesus is going to fix it. I got a problem, Jesus came to solve No, 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 I'm not saying he can't, and I'm not saying there aren't side benefits to Jesus. But how often do we look to use Jesus for our benefit as opposed to delighting in allowing Jesus to use us for his glory? So when, when exactly is he coming back? Soon. How is this also a comfort to us? Well, when he comes back, all things are made new again. No more mourning or weeping or pain, or suffering, or death. Look at, look at what he will do. As we've seen, he will give us not just parts of the kingdom, but the kingdom itself. We will rule and reign with Christ. We shall dwell with him face to face. Every desire that you have will be fully met and satisfied beyond your wildest ability to comprehend in Christ as we dwell with him. Every wrong will be made right. Every injustice will be, will be dealt with. Everything will be fixed. Death will be undone. And so for us who are in Christ, we're not laboring in futility. We're laboring in light of a certain hope that he will return 
and when he returns, all things will be made right. So perhaps someone's asking, and we'll close with this, well, what's he waiting on? You ever, ever want, what, what's he waiting on? Why, why isn't he coming? Well, I think Peter gives us an answer in, in 2 Peter. You know, the, the, the Lord is not going to let any of his people perish. Of those that the Lord has intended and decreed to save, which he decreed before the foundation of the earth, he will not come back before the last one is saved. And the moment that happens, boom, like a thief in the night, he shows up. And for those of us who are in Christ, just think about the eternity ahead of us from which we might look back and tell those funny stories of, remember back before Jesus came when we were so silly? We doubted him. We didn't really think he'd provide for us. We had no understanding of how he could let this happen if he really loved us. Remember, remember silly little us? What was wrong with us? Well, silly little us, we can see that where we are today by grace through faith. And what a delight to trust in God and live at the ready, not in fear that he's going to return and catch us doing something bad, but in delight in knowing that he will cause us to persevere to the end. He will cause us to do things that glorify him. And he will not cut us or break us or burn us because he has stood in our place already doing that. When he finds us in a very real sense, we will get well done, good and faithful servant because our good faithfulness is his credited to our account by him. Practically though, we're living that out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's working out from the inside to the outside who we are. So my friends, be ready. Be living at the ready. Even ask yourselves, why wouldn't you want to be living at the ready? Unless, of course, we think that our will is better than his will and our wisdom greater than his. But when you fall short, when you forget, when you neglect, remember that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous so that when anyone does sin, he is there for us. Do you see the beauty of this text? It's a comfort, but it's a comfort with an active, aggressive battle on our side. I also just want to remind us, be, be attentive. Every verse must be found in the context of the section it falls in. Every section must be found rightly in the context of the book it falls in. Every book must be rightly understood in the context of all of Scripture. This is a marvelous text to spin sideways. You, know, you, you tell someone they, they, they're a Christian, you say, well, you better be ready when he comes because if he doesn't find you at the ready, you're going to hell. Well, you've missed the gospel. You've fallen into the leaven of the Pharisees, man, because that's self-righteous legalism. So be ready. He is drop-dead serious. He wants to find us at the ready. He, in fact, says he will find us at the ready. And the reason he knows he'll find us at the ready is because he will cause us to be ready. At the end of John, he says to Peter, who has denied him three times, the end of your life, you won't deny me. You think, well, how does he know that? Is he just giving Peter a pep talk? How does he know Peter won't deny him? Because our sovereign Lord would cause Peter not to deny him because his children don't deny him at the end. He causes us to not to. So be ready. Rejoice that Christ will make you ready. And remember that he stood in the place taking what we deserve 
so we would receive by grace through faith what we don't deserve, salvation and new life in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would see you more clearly and fully for who you truly are. I pray that you would forgive us for the distorted versions of you that we bring to bear, either as soft or harsh, either as non-attentive or aggressively hyper-attentive. Lord, this life is a battle to see you more clearly as your children. And in reality, we have distorted versions of that based on perhaps our earthly parents. So Lord Jesus, help us see you in your sincerity and severity and holiness and justice and wrath. But let us not forget that you are also merciful, gracious, compassionate. You tell us in your very own words that you are gentle and lowly. How can that be? Who is this God? This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. Lord God, help us to take our refuge in you. For those who may be with us today, who are pursuing more of a home remodeling version of Christianity, who are trusting in their own power, or looking to the benefits of you to do their will, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would convict them of the fact that that is not salvation. That you would remind them of the truth that you will come and deal with those who haven't trusted in you. But also show them your gracious mercy and the offer of forgiveness and new life in you to those who turn to you for salvation. And Lord, for those of us who have been saved by you, I pray that you would delight in giving us a joyful attentiveness to living at the ready for you, not in a fearful approach of hoping you catch us doing the right thing, not the wrong thing, but in a delightful attentiveness to serving the one in whom we are eternally secure, knowing the freedom that comes of trusting in you, of delighting in you, of knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us, and seeing the new heart you've placed in us at work by the power of you, Holy Spirit, evidenced by the fact that we trust you, we know your wisdom, we know ourselves, and we walk with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. Thank you that one day you will make all things new. And thank you that not because we merited in any measure, but because you simply delighted in saving us, you have chosen us to unite to yourself forever. And in this life, we have the ability to serve you and glorify you and enjoy you as such. May we do so well in your power for your glory. In your holy name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We will close with a song, a benediction, and then we will meet over in Sunday school. So, JJ, would you close us with a song, please? Mm -hmm.